Over the past several weeks here at the Bible Chapel, we've been considering the Beatitudes, the introduction to the great sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you know, if you've ever taught, and many of you have, that as a teacher, you get more out of a study than you could ever expect uh, those listening to get. And this has been personally for me extremely uh, beneficial, uh, a, a great privilege to study this uh, portion of Scripture. What we did when we started was to look at the Beatitudes as a whole, and then over the weeks we looked at each one individually, and now we want to come back and wrap them back up so we can be those individuals who not are just hearers of the Word, but are doers as well. How do we put this portion of Scripture into practice? Jesus began this sermon that He continues in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 by addressing the internal workings of the heart. Most of the sermon deals with conduct, what we do, how we interact with God, how we interact with each other. But before He does that, He addresses our character because Jesus well knows that character produces conduct. Conduct follows character. Proverbs 4, 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart. That, uh, that headquarters of your mind, your thinking, your emotions, your feelings, your will, your actions, guard your heart for everything you do, what? Flows from it. So that's what we've been saying. Character follows conduct. Character produces conduct, rather. Conduct follows character. And that's why Jesus, in, this, in, in kind of his signature sermon, started with a person's character. The introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. In the Latin Bible, early on, the Vulgate, uh, the Latin word for blessing is Beatitude. And so that title stuck throughout church history. The best translation for the word in English is the word happy. We're careful the way we use that because in our culture, happy has been whittled down to some superficial feeling we get when everything's going our way. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, happy here, happy are you when, happy are you when, contented, joy, there's a peace, there's something internal that transcends all the situations we go through in life. And as believers, we're going to go through a lot of stuff in our life, and we can't pretend that those things in our life don't impact us. They do. Sometimes things come and that make us very joyful. Sometimes things come and they're challenging, they're discouraging. And so if we charted our life, it might look something like this. we got some ups and we got some downs, sometimes very high, sometimes very low. And Jesus is saying, those things are going to happen in your life. There are going to be challenges that you face. But even in the highs and even in the lows, when you follow me, when you are in me, when you are in Christ, you have this peace, this happiness that transcends the highs and the lows. There's a contentment there. There's a joy there. There's a satisfaction there. There's a meaning there that supersedes circumstances. The happiness Jesus talks about is circumstance proof. I talked to a guy yesterday morning, great guy, has had great ministry in Pittsburgh for many years, a businessman. And um, he just found out about six months ago he has Parkinson's disease. And so we were talking about that, and I said, man, that's got to be difficult. And he said, yeah, it is. I'm working with these medications and the doctors to figure out the new normal for my life. But, and then he said this, but here's what I'm really working on. How am I going to bring glory to God? How am I going to honor Him 
in this new normal of my life. Powerful, isn't it? Was that the best news he ever heard? Absolutely not. But he's saying down deep inside of me, there's a joy, there's a contentment, there's a peace that transcends this difficult time. And so my job now is to demonstrate that, to show what that looks like in the challenges of my life. Jesus is the great teacher, the greatest teacher who ever lived. So we wouldn't be surprised to learn as we look through the Beatitudes that Jesus presents the Beatitudes in a logical, spiritual sequence. And so let's look at that today. The first thing Jesus wants us to know in these Beatitudes is sin is serious to God. So he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you realize you have nothing to offer God on your own. You are a spiritual beggar. You're spiritually bankrupt. No matter what you think about your business acumen or how good you are over in this area or how great you are in this area, when it comes to your spiritual life, you are a spiritual beggar. Nothing to offer God. All your past religious experience, all your first communions, all your confirmations, your baptisms, all those things are nothing when it comes to having a relationship with God. You cannot work your way to God. You're a spiritual beggar. You're spiritually bankrupt. We call that total depravity. And the second part of that is when we realize that, when we have nothing to offer God, blessed are those who mourn. We don't like that. We are sorry for that. There is sorrow in our heart because now we are separated from the eternal God, the only one who can give us meaning, and we mourn our sin. We talked about three things there. We recognize our sin. It's there. We take responsibility for our sin. It's not our parents' fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not our DNA. It's not our neighbor. It's not our culture. We own our sin. And then thirdly, repentance. We change. By the power of God working in us, we change. Repentance comes from uh, the Greek word that we get the English word metamorphosis out of. It's a transformation. And it means this. I am walking this way in my life. God's over here. I don't care a thing about God. I'm going to do my thing. I am the God of my life. And then at some point, some way in your life, God opens your heart and you turn around. He causes you to see that you're a sinner, that you mourn your sin, and you turn around and you start following him. Will you follow him perfectly? Absolutely not. Will you fall down on the journey? For sure. But now you're headed his way. You're on his team. You're in his family. You are in Christ. That's why you're finding your significance. That's where you're finding your security, your acceptance, your forgiveness, your empowerment. When we realize we're a sinner and we mourn our sin, then there's some humility. We humble ourselves before God. You know, pride was what caused Satan to fall from heaven. Pride was what, wanted, was what caused Adam and Eve to want to be like God. And pride kills us and keeps us from God today. And there are many people who, with their head knowledge, they say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I can't work my way to God. And yeah, I shouldn't sin But humility is really hard, isn't it? To come to the point where I say, I have nothing to offer. And God, I submit myself to you. I'm giving myself over to you. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. 
the first three Beatitudes paint a picture of a spiritual beggar who humbly grieves his or her sin. Jesus, right out of the gate, tells us that sin is serious. Do we believe that? Do we really take sin that seriously? Jerry Bridges has, it's a great writer, has written an excellent book, several books, Pursuit of Holiness, Practice of Holiness. He also ran track at the University of Oklahoma, which makes him a very great person. And he's written this book called Respectable Sins. I don't know if anyone has read this book. Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. Pretty convicting for me. Let me read this to you. Has the idea of sin all but disappeared from us also? No, it has not disappeared, but it has in many instances been deflected to those outside our circles who commit flagrant sins, such as abortion or homosexuality and murder and the notorious white-collar crimes of high-level corporate executives. It's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sense of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness, lust, even our lack of gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen to what he says, but on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are about the sins of the saints. We're incensed, and rightfully so, when a major denomination ordained a practicing homosexual as bishop. Why do we not also mourn over our selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, our anger? It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying these sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones of society, but God has not given us the authority to establish values of different sins. Instead, he says through James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is accountable for all of it. That scripture is difficult for us to understand because we think in terms of individual laws and their respective penalties, but God's law is seamless. The Bible speaks not of God's laws as if there are many of them, but of God's law as a single whole. The truth is all sin is serious because all sin is breaking of God's law. But on the whole... We appear to be more concerned about the sin of society than the sins of the saints. If you had a chain, and you had many links to the chain, and you had one weak link, and you pulled the chain, what would happen? The chain would break, right? And so it is with God's law. All of His laws come together to make one law, the chain. And the Bible says, you got that one weak link, the whole chain breaks. We stand before God as sinners. We cannot, we cannot rail against the sins of society and wink at the sins of the saints. A couple months ago, one of our elders, uh, Bill McDougall, presented our devotion for that uh, meeting. And he quoted from A.W. Pink. Pink has written a tremendous work, two-volume work. He's an old writer, a two-volume work on the attributes of God. Listen to what Pink says. How hateful sin must be to God for Him to punish it 
to its utmost deserts when it was imputed to his son. How God must hate sin if he would choose to send his son and then put the sin of the world on his son. God hates sin. And as believers, we need to hate sin in our life just as much as we, as we rail against the sins of society. The first three Beatitudes deal with that. Blessed are you who are spiritually, realize you're spiritually bankrupt. You mourn your sin and you humble yourself before God. And then the fourth Beatitude becomes the turning point to that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the turning point. A person who is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you know that God is at work in your life. You realize that he, like Lydia in Philippians, he opened your heart to finally understand that you're a sinner and he's a great Savior. There is a hunger in your heart, hunger and thirst after being a righteous person, and you realize that only Jesus can make you righteous. We looked at three words when we studied this beatitude. We looked first at the word justification, three theological words that we need to know as believers. Justification means this. Two things happen in justification. Number one, we, we realize we're a sinner, can't do anything on our own. We humble ourselves before God. We're hungering and thirsting after Him. We say, I trust in Christ or I accept Christ, what, however it worked in your life as a believer. And God looks at us. He has taken our sin. He has put it on Jesus Christ. And he looks at us and says, you trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid for your sin. I declare you not guilty. And then he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on us. And so when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, what we're saying is we desire this relationship with Christ because on our own, we cannot be made righteous. We cannot make ourselves righteous. It's only Jesus who can make us righteous. So we could, we, could, we could illustrate it like this. Here we stand as a sinner. First three Beatitudes remind us of that. Can't do anything about it. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus takes my sin and he dies for it on the cross. He dies for the penalty of my sin. My sin is imputed to Jesus Christ. It is assigned to Christ. So now on the other side of the cross, here I stand. I stand in grace, and I stand as righteous. Not the righteousness of my own. I'm a sinner. But because of Jesus, he now has imputed to me his righteousness. I mean, what a tremendous, powerful thing that God has done. He takes my sin, and Jesus pays for it. And then Jesus takes his righteousness and gives it to me. And I stand before him clean and pure, not guilty, because of what Jesus has done. So the question is, have you done that? Do you know for sure that you are a child of the living God, that you stand righteous before God because Jesus has died for your sins? When we do that, when we enter into the kingdom of God, when we enter into his family, <clears throat> the second part of that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is called sanctification. Uh, this is a word uh, from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. 
uh, to make holy or to be set apart. And so our life as a Christian is desiring to be more like Christ, to be obedient to Him, to do what His Word says, to grow in our relationship with Him, to read His Word on a regular basis, to be a worshiper, both privately and corporately to be connected with other believers, to share the message of Christ, to serve Him with our gifts, to grow in our relationship with Him. Will we be perfect? Absolutely not. We're going to have ups and downs in this lives, but the life of the Christian over the long haul, you're going to see some upward movement. You're going to see some growth because they are growing in their relationship with Jesus. So there's justification, sanctification, and the last one is glorification. We hunger and thirst to be with God. There's a part of us that realizes we are not made for this world. This is just a short stint in the, in the picture we can't even imagine of eternity. It's not even a little dot on our timeline. We are made for eternity. And when we realize that, that changes the way we do things here. That changes the way we live our life here. By the way, think about it. If this short stint we have on earth... 70, 80, 90, give you 100 years. If that's all God put us here for, and after that it's over, that's a cruel joke. Because I'm not getting any younger. I'm not getting any better. We start slowing down. Things happen in our life. Disease comes. Pain comes. If this is it, it's a cruel joke. But God says, this isn't it. This is just to prepare you for eternity. This is to, by the way, why do you think we age and slow down and get older? God's saying, hey, I got something better for you. I'm weaning you off of this earth I got some great stuff for you. You can't even imagine. And when we realize that we were made for eternity and we want to take as many as we can along with us, we want to be the light and salt in the earth while we're here, whatever, however long it is, that changes things. That changes our perspective. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. And one of the things we want to do is the next, is the next beatitude. We want to be merciful. We want to demonstrate mercy to other people. We said mercy was compassion plus action. It's not just feeling bad for some situation. It's acting upon it. Now, there are a lot of things you can do to show mercy, right? You can take a meal to a neighbor across the street. You can help someone who physically needs some help. You can give some money to the needy. You can take a mission trip and go across seas and minister. That's fantastic. But mercy always has to be gospel-based. You can feed the poor, but if they don't know Christ, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And we have to be those who say, poor or rich, the most merciful thing we can do is what? What do you think the most merciful thing you can do to someone is? Share the gospel. Introduce them to Christ. They're dying of thirst, your neighbor is. Give them some water. They're starving. There's an inward famine in them, trying to fill it up with all this stuff. You've got the answer. You've got the food. The most merciful thing you can do is to share the gospel. 
Now, sometimes it's easier to get on a plane and go to the Mathari slums in Nairobi, Kenya, and share the gospel than it is to share the gospel with the neighbor next door. But God tells us, you don't look at a person's house and say, do they need my mercy? You look at a person's heart. And sometimes we've decided just the poor need mercy. I got to tell you, poor and rich are going to spend eternity in hell unless they know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So wherever God has planted you, share the gospel. That is the greatest thing you can do to be merciful. October, um, not October, but August, the 15th and 16th, we're going to start a series here. We, did, we do specifically to share the message as a church. We're going to look at four uh, movies. We're going to find a common denominator for our culture. Four movies. We're going to look at Unbroken, uh, when, um, The Good Lie, When the Game Stands Tall, and Maleficent. We use those movies as a common cultural ground, just like Paul did in Acts chapter 17 when he went into Athens and he saw all the, all the uh, temples to gods, the Parthenon to the guard, God of uh, Athena and the God of Nike and all these temples. And Paul says he was distressed. And then he saw uh, an idol to an unknown God. And so he went up to Mars Hill and spoke to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he didn't blast them. He just said, I know you're, I see you're religious people, and there's this unknown God, and I, and I want to tell you who that God is. Paul used the culture as a common ground to share the gospel. That's why we do this series. We are not doing it to entertain. We are, we are not trying to bring the culture in the church. We are not on a slippery slope. We are using Acts 17 to bring that in, and the, people are going to hear the gospel. Now, we do not need uh, people here. You don't want to invite people who are looking for another church. You don't want to invite people who are dissatisfied with something going on in their church. You want to invite people who do not know Jesus Christ. That is the most merciful thing you can do. And then you have the opportunity to have them over for lunch afterwards, uh, uh, have them for coffee during the week and say, hey, what did you think about that? Anything resonate with you? You know, he was talking about that movie. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. All right? So we're going to do this thing together. August the 15th, 16th, we start with Unbroken. You guys ready for this? Boy, now that's rousing right there. <clears throat> Four of us. We'll meet in my office on that Sunday. <clears throat> Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to transform lives. When we are merciful in sharing the gospel, then we realize now we've taken another level here. You see, if I'm telling someone about how Jesus Christ has changed my heart and inviting them to do the same thing, guess what? I better be living like that. I better be, I better be backing that up with my life. Because if I'm telling them that and not living like that, they're going to say, forget that. That's all talk. And so the next beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart. Pure, clean, free, complete. Best word, undivided. Heart, the center of our mind, emotions, and our will. Jesus is saying us here, blessed are those who 
desire, who are living, who are committed to live life with an undivided love for me. Their heart is focused and undivided. They don't have any other gods in their life. There are a lot of things that can divide our heart, a lot of stuff. But what do you think is the one thing that Jesus addressed over and over and over and over again in the Bible? It's addressed 2,350 times that divides the heart, and Jesus calls it the other God. It's money. I, I do not believe gay marriage is our culture's biggest issue. I believe materialism is. And I believe it starts right here with the, us in the evangelical church. It's not about making a church budget or funding multi-sites. Long before the Bible chapel was even a thought, Jesus was talking about money as the other guy. It's that competitive God. It's something we own, we can use. It's ours. Randy Alcorn has written this a great book called The Treasure Principle because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So where's your treasure? That's where your heart is. You don't know if your heart's undivided? Find where your treasure is. Alcorn says this, were we the Bible's editors, we might be tempted to cut out much of what it says about money and possessions. Anyone can see it devotes a disproportionate amount of space to the subject. When it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is sometimes redundant, often extreme, and occasionally shocking. It interferes with our lives, and it commits the unpardonable sin. It makes us feel guilty. If we want to avoid the guilt feelings, it forces us to invent a fancy interpretation to get around its plain meaning. How could the Bible's author, capital A, and editor, capital E, justify devoting twice as many verses to money than he did to faith and prayer combined? How could Jesus say more about money than both heaven and hell? Didn't he know what was really important? There's a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and the attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Listen to what he says. None of us can enthrone the true God. None of us can enthrone the true God unless in the process we dethrone other gods. I did some research this week and found in Christianity Today that a survey about a couple years ago said this. Don't shout this out, but how much of their income, what percentage of income do you think Christians give to the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ? 2.43. You say, well, that's Christians. That could have been liberal Christians. 
don't even believe Jesus is the only way to God. They just go to church. You're right. What about evangelical Christians? What about those who believe the Bible to be true? That God's Word is authoritative in their life. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That He is the only way to have a relationship with the living God. That through Jesus, we can have a personal, transforming relationship to the living God. That He gives us the Holy Spirit and empowers us to live a life of significance and security and acceptance and forgiveness and empowerment. What about evangelical Christians who believe that when they die, the moment they die, they're going to see Jesus face to face. Now, that's got to be different, right? Evangelical Christians who believe that. You know what that's worth? One point five seven percent, which means that evangelical Christians give four percent. I don't know who gives what here at the Bible Chapel. I don't want to know. And I don't know what our stats are. But I know this. Money is the other God. The writer of that article that I got that from, for Christians in the richest nation in history to be given only 2.43% of their income to their churches is not just stinginess. It's biblical disobedience. It is blatant sin. We have become so seduced by the pervasive consumerism and materialism of our culture that we hardly notice the ghastly disjunction between our incredible wealth and recognizing poverty in the world. Over the last 40 years, American Christians, as we have become progressively richer, have given smaller and smaller percent of our growing income to ministry of our churches. So we can't have an undivided heart if we're serving another God. You say, well, what should we give? We don't tell you what to give. Some people give a tithe. Some people always preach a tithe. The problem with preaching a tithe is it's not in the New Testament. Tithe was one part of what the Israelite gave in the Old Testament. When you figure up everything the Israelite gave in the Old Testament, living in a theocracy, they gave anywhere estimates between 25 and 33%. And the reason it's like that is because some were farmers, and farmers uh, uh, left the edges of their field uncut, right? So that the poor could come in and, and, and take the grain. So there's a, a difference between what people gave. So I, I don't know. It's grace giving in the New Testament. I don't know what you should give. It's got to be between you and the Lord. But you got to decide between Him. Is God another money? I think 4% is a little low, but that's just me. It's between you and God. And we can justify it until the cows come home. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide. God's given me everything. Everything I have is a gift from Him. Not only all this tangible stuff, but salvation itself. Am I truly giving back to Him in any way that is proportionate with what He's given me? That's the key to the New Testament. Proportionate giving in how He has blessed you. You've got to figure that out. We've got classes to help you. We've got instruction to help you. But at the end of the day, a person, a person, a person could give 15% and do it begrudgingly. That's not the way God wants you to give. 
He wants you to give in a happy way, in a way that says, man, I, I can't believe how gracious you are to me. And I want to give to you what rightfully belongs to you. Sure, I got to live, and I'm going to use my house to minister. Yeah, I got to have a car to get to work. I'm going to use my car to minister. At work, this job you've given me, I know I get money there, but, but I'm going to use it to minister. I'm going to be a minister wherever I am, to whomever you put in my life. See, that's the upside-down life. When we do that, we become peacemakers because when we're sharing the gospel with others, we don't, we, we don't want to share the gospel with someone and tell them about this transforming life and then let them know that we're not talking to our brother or sister over here because of something they did to us 15 years ago. And that doesn't jive. And we may be persecuted for it. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's the upside-down life that Jesus has called us to. It's not some half-baked go along to get along, sometimes follower, sometimes not follower of Christ. When it's convenient, it works out, but if I'm going to have a sacrifice, I'm not going to do that because I live under grace, man. I'm not going to do that guilt thing. Well, James tells us don't use grace as a license to sin. Beatitudes describes a person who's on fire, who's a kingdom person, who's sold out, who is passionate about what they believe, more passionate for Jesus than they are for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Can you believe that? I'm serious. Can you believe that? Passionate, equipped, engaged in a battle, a life that has a distinctive Difference, a life that demands an explanation. It's an upside-down life that God has called us to. Is that the life that you're living? That's who you are. You're the salt. You're the light. You don't have a choice on that. You trusted in Christ. He's called you to yourself. You are it. Now, it's that upside-down life. Is that the life you want to live? Is that the life you are living? As Kirk comes out and leads us in the last song, Christ being the cornerstone is all about him. Let's just spend a couple minutes here in prayer and just ask God to deal with us and show us, right? I'm the worst person to examine my heart. I don't rationalize anything. So I got to say, God, examine my heart. Show me where I am missing the ball. Sometimes you got to take a... a Figurative, two by four, and knock me upside the head. But show me where I'm missing, I'm missing it. So I, can, so I can change. So I can be the upside-down Christian you want me to be. So as we begin to pray, just take a minute to quiet your heart before God. looked at this series in the Beatitudes and man there have been some convicting truths in there and we uh, readily admit that um, we're not where we need to be in every one of those truths 
Sometimes we really don't take sin that seriously, except the sins of others, except society's sins. We kind of turned a blind eye at those sins that we like to fondle and, and keep. Forgive us. Sometimes hungering and thirsting after righteousness doesn't really describe us. Because if we really are honest about what we wake up thinking about and what we go to bed thinking about and really what drives us, it's, it's not to be the righteous person you've called us to be. We understand our position in Christ. We're righteous because of Him. But, but help us to match that with our practice. Help us to be those who are merciful. Help us to understand that while taking a meal to someone is showing mercy, the greatest act of mercy is sharing the eternal meal, the message of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to be those committed to be pure in heart, undivided heart for you. Show us those gods in our life that need to be dethroned. And then help us do more than talk about dethroning them. Help us to do it. Help us to be peacemakers. And give us the courage, even if we're insulted or injured, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to stand for you even if we have to stand alone. May we be the upside-down Christians, Father, that you have called us to be. May we be the light of the world that you say we are so that people can see the things we do. They can't see inside our heart, but our heart produces our actions. And so they see the things we do, and they realize it doesn't come from us but you get all the glory. Help us to let our light so shine before men that they will see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for what he's done for us. May we respond with the upside-down life that he's called us to. We pray in his name. Amen.